Hello, Spartans, and welcome to Go Green, Go Live. I'm Russ White. We're going to be talking about grocery bills. Has yours been higher than you'd like recently? The stress on our nation's food supply chain has certainly been unprecedented. While farmers and food producers struggle with supply and demand issues, consumers are continuing to see rising grocery prices. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, grocery bills shot up by 2.6% in April, the largest spike since 1974. And those price increases haven't let up. From farm to table, COVID-19 has placed added stress on everyone's plate. To help us better understand these complex issues, we're going to talk with Spartan alumnus Dustin Baker, a 2012 graduate from the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Today, he works as the manager for education and research at Commodity and Ingredient Hedging LLC in Chicago. And he's going to help us unpack this meaty topic. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. You know, before we get into it, uh, Dustin, tell us what commodity and ingredient hedging does and what do you do for them? Well, CIH, as we call it, Commodity Ingredient Hedging, we're headquartered in Chicago. We're a financial and technology firm that works with producers, mainly farmers, as well as food companies to help them manage their risk over time. We do this through education and research, as well as consultation. So we do this primarily with futures and options, which are actively traded every single day in Chicago with buyers and sellers from around the world. They get together and determine the value of these commodities, such as corn, soybeans, cattle, and pork, for not only today, but also for months and years out in time. So we help farmers and food companies manage that risk over time in order to improve their bottom line. So, Dustin, we're nearly five months into this pandemic, and while it seems the initial consumer panic has steadied a bit, grocery prices aren't showing any signs of dropping back down. What's the main driver of the higher grocery prices we're seeing? Yeah, we've been getting that question an awful lot, and I think there's really two main drivers, and they're they're intertwined, but they're really separate from one another. The first one occurred when stay-at-home orders went into place. And people immediately began shifting the way that they consumed products, food included. Um, The second major impact came from the proliferation of COVID cases in meatpacking plants around the country. They're really two separate uh, issues that had differing impacts on different commodities. Um, If we look at the first one, when people were forced to stay at home, businesses shut down, restaurants shut down, schools closed. Uh, immediately people changed where they were consuming their food and other products. So we saw this in toilet paper, right? When people were stocking up to to limit the number of trips that they were taking to the store. Uh, And it was really confusing to some because were people all of a sudden going to be consuming more toilet paper? The answer to that was, was no, but they were changing where they were consuming that toilet paper. And the same was true for food as well, where rather than eating outside of the home, people were consuming more of their meals or almost all of their meals at home. And we know that people consume food differently at home versus away from home. In 2019, about 55% of total food expenditures were on meals away from home. So the vast majority or the majority of our food expenditures occur away from home. When we shut that off as an option, uh, consumers had to change their habits. And we know that when people eat away from home, they typically eat higher valued cuts of meat. They typically eat more dairy as a result uh, of more cheese and butter in those in those meals. 
And so we saw a major increase in demand at the grocery store in March and April for the staples. So we're talking bread, eggs, milk, and ground meat. Because if we think about it too, even though it seems like it was years ago, it was only a couple months ago, uh, back in March, we should have been watching March Madness. We should have been out in the bar eating chicken wings. Uh, remember it was cold. We should have been watching Cassius Winston lead us to yet another Final Four appearance. And instead we were stuck at home and people gravitated toward easy to make meals such as chili, tacos, uh, and other you know, low labor intense uh, meals. Comfort food, as they call it, Dustin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, despite increased demand at the grocery store and higher prices for dairy and beef products, farmers are often forced to dump milk or slaughter cattle before they reach production. To the everyday person, that can seem a little counterintuitive. Can you help us understand why farmers are forced to make that decision? Sure. Well, from time to time, market prices will dictate such that it doesn't make financial sense to harvest a crop that's out in the field. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen a sad irony develop, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, wherein we were seeing videos of dairy farmers that were having to dump their milk. There's a number of reasons why they had to do that. As I mentioned, uh, there is the immediate loss of a significant chunk of demand in the form of hotels, restaurants, and institutions when those shut down. Now, we know that when people eat away from home, they eat more dairy, especially cheese and butter. And we know that when milk leaves the farm, it can be made into a variety of products, including, including fluid milk, yogurt, cheese, ice cream, or powders. Now, these milk plants that manufacture those products are very uh, highly specified, and it requires an awful lot of investment in order to, to get to that point. So it's really difficult to make quick and swift changes from one product to another. Now, at the same time, manufacturing products for restaurants is much different than manufacturing consumer-oriented products. If we look at, for example, plants that were set up for school lunch programs, we're typically bottling or putting milk into the cardboard containers that we all drank growing up. If all of a sudden they were forced to shift gears and put them into gallons of milk for the grocery store, that requires not only changes in the way that they do business within the plant, but it also requires them to have gallons of milk or empty gallons ready to go. Um, and so there's, there's logistical issues and supply chain issues there as well. And so what we had was heading into the spring, which is typically the highest production period for the U.S. dairy herd, known as the spring flush. We had a lot of milk coming to the market. This was supposed to be a record year for milk production. And at the same time, we lost a lot of demand from the restaurants shutting down. And so we just had too much milk on the market without enough places to go. And so for a lot of farmers, they had to figure out what to do with that milk. And there's really three main, three main uh, options that they had. They could remove cows from production, which is unfortunate because you don't expect that the restaurant is going to the restaurant industry is going to be lost forever. You would expect that to come back at some point. You'd prefer to have those cows in the herd when those, when those uh, demand outlets come back. Uh, you could change the diet of the cows in order to reduce the milk per cow that they're producing. And really the third option was to dump milk um, because unfortunately you can't turn the faucet off on a cow. They still keep producing milk whether the demand there is there or not. So for a lot of farmers and a lot of dairy cooperatives that market their milk, that was the simplest, cheapest, um, easiest option for the short term. And you know, Dustin, I've heard it said it's a bit simplistic, but farmers will grow what consumers want. Consumers really drive 
what's produced. Do you see any changes to consumer choice coming? Will we have fewer options for the varieties and specific cuts of meat available, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, I think time will tell on that. But that's what's interesting about these markets is, you know, they're, they're true markets. And so supply and demand are, are functioning every single day to achieve an equilibrium between buyer and seller at a price that, that clears the market. What's been interesting, as you talk about different cuts of meat, is really the secondary impact that we saw as we moved into April and May was that we had COVID cases occurring at meat packing and processing facilities around the country. And this particularly hit cattle and hog producers uh, really hard. And so not only were plants shut down because they had COVID cases among their workforce, other packing plants were having to slow down production in order to enforce social distancing, as, as well as any of the other um, provisions that the USDA was putting forward. So we saw the significant reduction in packing capacity, and it created this wedge wherein we had a backup of animals that on the farm that weren't being able to be processed because of the slowdown at the plants. And at the same time, because of the slowdown at the plants, we saw less meat coming out and going to the grocery stores. And as a result, the meat prices were skyrocketing, which we're still feeling some effects from. And the price for the live animals was falling because they couldn't find a home for their, for their animals. So we saw this big disconnect between the value of the live animal and the value of the meat that was ultimately going to the retailers. And usually there's a lag between the time, the price that we see on the meat side of things until it shows up in the retail space. And that's really what we're still feeling the impact of in the grocery stores is uh, that bottleneck that developed in packing and processing facilities. And on the on the farmer side, we're still seeing a backup of animals that we're still trying to chew through. Dustin, food insecurity became a reality for many families when the pandemic first hit this spring and could become more acute depending on what Congress does here. But how does this shift in the supply chain affect food banks and their ability to provide food for insecure families? And maybe, Dustin, define what you mean by food insecurity first. You know, when we talk about food insecurity, we're talking about who doesn't have access to enough calories, mix of calories in order to live an active, healthy lifestyle throughout the year. And unfortunately, here in the United States, we have a pretty significant issue with food security. Um, even in a good year, a normal year without a pandemic, uh, one in six households with children is food insecure at some point throughout the year. That's a very serious issue that we have. Uh, it's even prevalent on campus. I know there's a student food bank that, that does a lot of good for those students on campus that are food insecure. And certainly, you know, the rising food prices that we've seen, I mean, it's been unprecedented. Food away from home seems to be starting to plateau in terms of the increase in prices that we've seen. Um, but we've seen some of the largest increases in, in food away from home prices uh, in the last over the last decade. So certainly the, the action from Congress to, to get money into the hands of those who are displaced from work has been helpful. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, we're starting to run out of those funds. I'm, I'm assuming and hoping that Congress or, or somewhere in D.C., they'll, they'll get something done in order to, to make sure that everyone can feed themselves and their families uh, throughout the next couple weeks and months. But one of the provisions that uh, Congress passed was the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. And included in that was not only payments to farmers whose commodities had decreased in value throughout the first and second quarter, 
um, but it also included $3 billion in purchases for food boxes to be donated to, uh, to food shelters and food banks or shelters and food banks. And so that's been really swift action and created another injection of demand, which has helped make up for some of the displaced demand from restaurants shutting down. Spartans will indeed. We're talking with Dustin. He's a 2012 graduate of MSU's College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. He works with the food supply chain in the country, and we're talking about some of the COVID-19 impacts on our grocery bills and our food supply. And and Dustin, looking to the future, what are some of the long-term effects on the food supply chain that you see occurring as a result of the pandemic? I mean, will food suppliers change their processes? Do you see consumer behavior permanently changing? Yeah, that's a good question. That's kind of the million dollar question right now. I think that there will be a number of changes that come out of this. Like I said, on the, on the grocery side of things, we seem to be at a point where we're almost plateauing in terms of our, our prices increasing. Uh, unfortunately, there's still real hurt occurring on the farm level. And, and that is really going to occur for at least the next six months, at least according to the futures prices that we're trading today. And so we're looking at pretty steep negative margins for cattle, hog, and dairy producers. And so I think there'll be further consolidation in, in some capacity uh, of, the, of the livestock producers. I think what's been really interesting to come out of this is a lot of people have taken a lot more interest in where their food comes from. I don't think that most people assume that they go to the grocery store and that's where their food actually comes from. But I think there's been a greater understanding and appreciation for the number of steps that occurs from the farm to the grocery store until it ultimately comes back home. And so I I think that's potentially a positive. Uh, I think there'll be definitely discussion about regulatory reform. I think people have realized what happens when we have all of our eggs in one basket or when we're very um, concentrated in terms of our, say, packing capacity and what happens if you lose one of those plants uh, as a viable option or outlet for your animals, um, you know, you're kind of up the creek. So I think there'll be interesting discussions about that. And at the same time, you know, I was talking about how due to the bottleneck, we saw a real fall in the value of live animals and an increase in the value of the meat that came from them. I think there'll continue to be further discussion about what is the best way for farmers to price their animals uh, in order to make sure that everyone's incentives are aligned and everyone is rowing in the same direction has, you know, equal gains and losses on, on the value of the ultimate product that they're producing. I think there's also pretty interesting conversations going on about uh, the local food movement. I know anecdotally, a lot of my friends have had a lot of their neighbors come and, and ask them from their farm if they're able to purchase any of their animals for their freezer in order to stock up in the event that there's another sort of disruption like we've seen recently. So I think by and large, potential shakeup in the makeup of the, of the farmers themselves, but I think also potential for further regulatory reform to increase competition and ultimately increase the choice that consumers have uh, to feed themselves and their family. And you just started to touch on it there, Dustin, but as an economist, do you see any silver linings in this situation? Any areas of innovation that will flourish as a result of the pandemic? For example, some economists have said that despite the challenges faced, our national food supply has proven to be resilient. Yeah, I think that's definitely the takeaway is that, you know, I don't want to minimize the impact that rising grocery store prices have had on, on consumers, especially those who are, are struggling, because uh, it's real and it's non-trivial. But at the same time, 
when you consider what our economy has been through and what the ag sector has been through over the last six months. And for year to date, overall food prices are only up four and a half percent from last June compared to this June. I think that's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, going forward, I think there'll be continue to be discussions about how can we how can we keep that going? What was interesting back in March was over 50 percent of Americans were buying food online, which I know that's been a trend for a while. And that might have been more to decrease the amount of trips people were taking to the store. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, what's the future of e-food commerce and, uh, and how does that increase access to fresh and affordable food for consumers around the, around the country. And do you have any advice for consumers on how to change their buying behaviors or how to manage these rising food prices? You know, what's important to remember is that, you know, every single day farmers are out producing food every single day. Manufacturers are out making the food and making it into consumer packaged goods. So even though it might be uncomfortable to see a, a shelf bare at the store because we're not used to seeing that in the United States, rest assured it's being made behind the scenes and there'll be more tomorrow if it's not there today. You know, we've got a, a lot of protein coming our way. This is relatively temporary and uh, we'll be able to hopefully all eat out together and, and enjoy a tailgate maybe, uh, maybe not this season, but next season, hopefully sometime soon. <laughs> and Dustin, I mean, we mentioned how MSU is known for its agriculture program, among others. Why was this the best place for you to attend? And how did being a Spartan impact you? How does it still perhaps? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to grow up on a, on a small livestock farm about an hour north of campus up in St. Louis, Michigan. And um, my family's livelihood was my father's cattle contracting business. So it was pretty natural for me to be, you know, gravitate toward agriculture in general. My grandparents went to Michigan State. My parents met at Michigan State and my sister graduated from MSU as well. So going to MSU wasn't one of the most difficult decisions that I've ever had to make in my life, but it was one of the best. You're going to be allowed to go elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) And so, you know, it it was pretty natural for me. I've always enjoyed numbers and economics. And uh, so, you know, ag business was a, was a very natural fit for me. And what I think is pretty cool is MSU was the pioneer land grant and, and the mission of the Moral Act was really to disseminate good around the world. And I think it's really cool to be a part of something bigger than myself, like MSU. You know, I see my classmates that day in, day out, they, they research the genetics of the food uh, the, of the plants and animals that we eat. They work to ensure that people have access to fresh and affordable food and food deserts around the country. Uh, they work to make sure that the rules of the game are set up from a regulatory framework in Washington, D.C., such that uh, competition rules and, and consumers have choice. And so I think that's pretty awesome to be a part of that land-grant mission, even in my own simple way. And it extends beyond the College of Ag as well. I think at MSU, it's full of people who are elite, but not elitists. And I, I see that every every time that I you know look at classmates that are out teaching the next generation of leaders or working on criminal justice reform in their own communities or researching the next big med- medical breakthrough. And so it makes me really proud to be part of that. You know, it's, it's one of the greatest achievements in my short life so far is uh, being a Spartan and, and having that camaraderie with, with other Spartans around the country. And Dustin, make your pitch for young people career searching these days. I mean, agriculture is high tech and technology and as sophisticated as any industry, isn't it? It definitely is. And, you know, it's the breadth is so wide, whether you're, you're working with animals or working 
uh, with plants or, you know, working on the economic side of things or, or the technology, whether it's, whether it's drones or, or coding or whatever, you know, the opportunities really are endless. And I like to say that job security is there. I mean, people have to eat, you know, people might not go to the doctor every day or they might not, uh, you know, go to a classroom every single day, but they typically eat three times a day. You know, agriculture is, is here to stay. It's, it's definitely at the forefront of technological breakthroughs. And um, I, I think that's a, it's a fun thing to be a part of. And, and it's, a, it's a good story to tell because everyone has great connections to food. We sit down with families and eat at you know, the dinner table. We center f- holidays around food. We center football games around food and tailgating. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a really interesting aspect of the economy to be involved with. And, and Dustin, final question for you. We often hear about there being 10 billion people on the planet by 2050, and we've touched on food insecurity before. Are we in the world collectively up to feeding all those people? I think so. Um, you know, I'm optimistic about it. I have to be optimistic because the alternative isn't very fun. <laughs> that's for sure. But, um, you know, from a, from a certain standpoint, it's, it's not an issue of, of calories in the, in the world right now. It's more of an issue of logistics. Earlier when I was talking about MCU, I, I forgot to mention the, the importance of the packaging school as, as well as the supply chain management program, which are both tops in the country. You know, food waste is a pretty serious issue uh, throughout the world. Some estimates say that we waste between 30 and 40 percent of the food that we produce. Um, so you not only waste the food itself, but you also waste all of the resources and labor that went into that food production. And so I think being able to have more efficient manners to get from the farm to the table, um, whether that's through logistics or, or through packaging as well, uh, you know, it's all intertwined and in, in, in plays together. But I'm definitely optimistic. You know, we've got a lot of smart minds working together, especially there on campus. Uh, I think we'll be good to go in terms of uh, feeding the world, not only today and tomorrow, but but years out in time. Well, Dustin, I want to thank you for uh, shedding a lot of light on these important and sometimes complex topics for us. Is there, are you on Twitter or is there a website if people want to learn more about what you or the company does that you can share? Or company website is cihedging.com. Uh, and I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle's BakerDR. It's full of some travel pictures, some hiking pictures, and a lot of bad MSU sports takes. So feel free to follow me on there if you want. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, I love the classic Time magazine with Duffy Doherty on the cover over your right shoulder. They're nicely done. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> I guess it's this way. <laughs> so, Dustin, thank you again. Really appreciate your time this evening. Yep, thank you. I appreciate it. Go green. And all the best to you. Go green, go white.